Good morning. Um, my name is Elliot. Like I said, I'm the pastor here. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we're really glad you're here. Uh, I hope that you feel all the freedom in the world to come and um, take from this place uh, that no one asked you here uh, for your money. No one asked you here for what you can do for this place. Uh, we actually hope that you experience Jesus here. We hope you experience Jesus serving you here um, and if you've got any questions about Jesus or the church, uh, we would love to engage with those. I promise we can't answer all of them, but we can show you who Jesus is. Um, so I hope you stick around. Um, but we have been walking through the book of Revelation this fall. Uh, we're calling our series Reframing Reality because we don't believe that Revelation was written as an end times predictor book so that people thousands of years after it was written could use the code of Revelation to decode the times and figure out have the end times begun or not. We don't believe that Revelation was written um, for our benefit only thousands of years after it was written. We believe it was written for people's benefit who first read it, these seven churches in Asia in the first century. And they were going through some things. They were being persecuted. They wouldn't worship the emperor Domitian. And so they were being persecuted and killed and tormented. And Revelation is the vision of reality that they're given. And the vision of reality, this apocalyptic vision of reality, John is given on the island of Patmos to see reality from a divine heavenly perspective. That's why it's an apocalyptic literature. It's, he's shown the world. He's shown reality from an apocalyptic, from a divine heavenly perspective. And John has shown all kinds of different things. We've been looking at the things that he was shown. He's jumped around from different scene to different scene. There's a lot of repetition in the book because he kind of sees one scene from one angle and then another scene from another angle. And it's all, it's all telling you, it's all showing the listener and, and, and it's inviting the listener to use their imagination to imagine how Jesus currently is in the, from a heavenly perspective and how reality is from a heavenly perspective. So we're looking at different themes. We've looked at the praise of Jesus. We looked at uh, the, the paradox of Jesus in his church looked at all these different things. And last week we, we looked at, or Brant, uh, our East Nashville pastor, uh, took us through the, the power of Jesus, part one, the, the power of Jesus in the world and what he's ruling over currently. And this week we'll kind of close out the power of Jesus, part two, the reality of the power of King Jesus and the seat that he sits in in the cosmos. And so we're going to get a little bit of who Jesus is, but a big uh, part of what we're going to look at too is not just some things that are, but some things to come as well. So it's a long intro into Revelation chapter 20. We're jumping up to Revelation 20. We were in Revelation chapter 6 this past week, but now we're in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be looking at two parts of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 11 through 15. So Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, and then 11 through 15. It says this, as John speaking, says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw, verse four, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads. Sorry, I lost my spot. Not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. 
Verse six, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now skipping down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me before we enter this text? Jesus, um, for some of us, this passage has familiar terminology. For some of us, we've never heard this passage read. And for some of us, we, we already think we know everything this passage is saying. And I pray, no matter where we are, that you would cause this passage to do what only your word can do, which is to show us Jesus. That as we read through it, it may be confusing, and what about this, and what about these images, but Jesus, I pray that you would not let our intellectualism stop us from being able to, to pause and behold the beauty of Jesus in this passage. Will we leave here, regardless of how we came in, will we leave here knowing that we have had a fresh encounter with the living Jesus, because you have revealed yourself to us through this book called Revelation. Show us yourself, Jesus, we pray. We are desperate for it. We need awakened affections for you. We pray now for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it may not uh, appear like it on the surface, but the first six verses of this chapter have been the subject of much debate in theological camps. And I know it sounds like a riveting time, debates and theological camps, uh, but it's true. The first six verses, how one interprets the first six verses of Revelation chapter 20, not only will inform how one goes on to interpret the rest of the book of Revelation, it will go on, and this is not hyperbolic, how you interpret these first six verses will go on to inform how you interpret the world as you know it. And that's not an overstatement. That is meant to show you the things that it is talking about have a direct impact on how you view yourself and the world as you know it. These verses are where the great debate of eschatology come from. These first six verses is what eschatology is rooted in. It's where the debate begins is in these first six verses. Eschatology, two words, eschaton and ology. Eschatology, the eschaton is the last things, the end of all things, the final things. And ology meaning the study of, the knowledge of. So the knowledge of, the study of, the final things, the end of things. So eschatology is the study of the end times. And for the Christian, or, or any, any non-Christian, biblical scholar who wants to take the Bible and understand what it's trying to say, you can't deal with the final things, the eschatology of things, until you deal with this passage, because this passage is what introduces us to this idea of the thousand years, the thousand year binding of Satan. I'm going to read it quickly, but I want you to just note how many times this thousand years is referred to in this, in this chapter, these first six verses. Verse one, we're going to read the first six. Says this. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, this part of Revelation 20 precedes the final part, which is the main part of this chapter, which we'll get to the final judgment scene. We'll talk about that. But how one views the final judgment scene in relationship to the thousand years, the thousand year binding of Satan, the thousand year reign of Christ over Satan has a lot to say. It informs what you believe about the return of Jesus and the end of all things. The question is, is what is the relationship of Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead? What is the relationship of that event to this thousand year reign of Satan being bound? And there are three, technically four, but three main camps that have emerged, three main views that have emerged. And like all my seminary professors would have flunked me if I would have said, I'm going to summarize this in about two minutes. Uh, This is its own sermon. This is its own workshop. We could talk about it for days and there's books, but I'm just going to give you kind of a very high flyover of the three, there are technically four, but three main views that have emerged. And again, This all affects how one views the whole book of Revelation and it goes on to affect how one interprets the telos of the cosmos, the the trajectory of where all things are headed, how you interpret these six verses. They all have to do with when does Jesus' return to judge? When is that happening in relationship to the thousand year reign of Jesus having bound Satan, okay? So you either believe that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead, and then in that returning of Jesus one day, he will bind Satan for a thousand years. So you believe that the return of Jesus precedes the millennium, precedes the thousand years. That's a millennium. That's okay. You got it. Millennium is, didn't set that up, but a millennium is a thousand years. So you either believe Jesus is coming back before the thousand year reign, you are a pre-millennialist, okay? Or you believe that at some point in time, the thousand year binding of Satan is going to happen. And then at the end of that thousand years, like literal thousand years, Jesus is going to return and to judge the living and the dead. That would make you a post millennialist. Okay. And if you're really entitled, you're just a millennial. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. So there's, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a pre-millennial Jesus is going to return and then the thousand year reign is going to begin. There's a post-millennial, which is the thousand-year reign is going to begin. He's going to bind Satan, and then Jesus is going to return at the end of that. Or you believe that symbolically and allegorically, biblical metaphor, that the thousand-year binding of Satan is currently going on and has already happened. That Jesus bound Satan when he arrived on earth and his life and death and resurrection and ascension bound Satan and began this metaphorical thousand-year time frame. And then at the end of that thousand year metaphorical time frame, Jesus will then return to judge the living and the dead. So that's called amillennial. It's outside of the millennium. It's, it's not based on a literal interpretation of those a thousand years. So either you're a premillennial, 
You're post-millennial or you're an amillennial. Now, pre-millennials have a couple different camps inside of them, but pre, post, or ah. And you can believe any of those. Two of them are wrong, but you can believe any of them. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You really can biblically believe all, any of those three. This church deeply believes in amillennialism. We believe that Christ has already bound Satan by his first coming, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. The parable that Jesus tells in the gospels to bind the strong man in the strong man's house. That is, we believe that is talking about when Jesus came, he bound the strong man. Satan has been bound. We believe that Jesus is currently ruling and the church is currently co-ruling with him in this age, in this day, in this section before Christ returns. And one day, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Now, that's the summary of your eschatology, okay? There is so much. And we will talk about more of this because the implications, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, the implications for you believing whether or not Satan has already been bound or not, the implications for what you believe about when Jesus is going to return and what that means about the thousand-year reign has a lot of impact on how you're going to live right now. Okay. And we're, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, but the implications are massive. If you want to read more about this, there's lots of great books. I can, I can send you, I'll buy them for you if you can't afford it. There's lots of great books about this, but we're setting this up not to deep dive on eschatology this morning, but how one views eschatology in the thousand year reign does have a lot to lead you into how you might come to understand the second half of this chapter, which is the most important scene in this chapter. This is verse 11 through 14, the great scene of the final judgment. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll circle ourselves back to briefly on our views of eschatology in a minute. But the main scene of this chapter is the judgment scene, the final judgment moment. Verse 11 through 14. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray and go home. No, I'm kidding. Glad you came this morning. Here we go. This is the final judgment scene. You, you've heard about it, but this is what scripture and revelation would say is the last great reality of the world in space and time as we know it. Here it is, judgment. The payment of all the accounts, the writing of all the wrongs, judgment day. Now, I know that when a preacher says judgment day, everybody has ways that they fill that in in their minds of what that means, what you've heard about that, what you were taught about that. Here's, but, but before you kind of get off your intellectual highway on that off ramp and go, I can't go any further because I don't believe in judgment day, you need to know that every history in the, every religion in the history of the world, in every corner of the world, in every chapter of time, every religion, believes in a judgment day. Every single one. If you want to remove yourself from judgment day, that's fine, but you cannot join any religion. You cannot have any religious practice because every religion believes on some level that a judgment day is coming. 
Judaism, Islam, Hinduism. At the end of all things, one must give an account of what they've done with their hands. And when you give that account, it will determine whether or not you are welcomed into bliss or what, what, what eternity, how you're going to spend your eternity or what your reincarnation is going to look like. It is going to affect your afterlife. Your judgment will be based on what you've done and then you will receive a verdict from the judge. And what the Bible says is that Jesus, who is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father, will return one day to judge the living and the dead. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed. The church has believed this since day one. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. If you've been following along with Revelation, you know how the book of Revelation um, displays and reveals to us who Jesus is. He's the lamb on the throne. He's the rider on the white horse. He is the, the epicenter of all reality. He is the supreme being in all the universe, the one who was and who is and is to come. What that means is, is that Jesus is the only person in the universe who has the power to judge the world. And it means that Jesus is the only being, only creature in the universe who not only has the power to judge the world, he has the knowledge to judge the world. He knows everything. So he's got the power to judge the world. He's got the knowledge to judge the world. And finally, the way that Revelation and the rest of the Bible would present to you Jesus is that he also has the right to judge the world because he made the world. So this is your Jesus. And this is who Revelation 20 says is going to sit on the throne at the end of all time and judge the living and the dead. He has the power, he has the knowledge, he has the right to judge. And Revelation here is not introducing to you any new theology. It's, it's echoing dozens and dozens of other places in scripture that speak to Jesus as judge. It's showing you the biblical reality. It's giving you an apocalyptic vision of the reality that Jesus is judge. One of the places in the New Testament, there are lots that speak to Jesus as judge comes from Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says, it is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. It is appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So what does that mean? What does it mean that one day everyone in this room will stand before the judge on judgment day? What does it mean and what will happen? Well, in this apocalyptic vision of judgment day, the judgment is going to be, did you catch it, like the opening of books. Now again, don't take this literally. This is symbolically telling us what John saw in an apocalyptic vision. It will be like this. The judgment is going to be like the opening of books. Verse 12, reread this with me. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever tweeted, everything you've ever texted, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever gossiped about, everything you've ever fantasized about, all the lies, all the lust, all the rage, all the vile greed, all the grasping for power, all the condescension, all the arrogance, all the money, all the sex, all the security, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever done has been recorded in a book. Now, you need to know, though, that you can hear that and you can go, oh, man, that sounds harsh. But please know, these books are not cruel. These books are just honest. The record of your doings has been recorded in a book. These books are like a mirror. It can't lie to you. Mirrors can't lie to you. I know you sometimes wish they could. Mirrors just show you you. And you can get mad at the mirror or you can go, maybe that's just how I look. Maybe that's what these books are. 
One of the stories uh, about mirrors don't lie. Uh, I've told this story before years ago, but uh, I'd gotten a new shirt. I don't remember when or how I'd gotten it. Probably my wife bought it for me, but it doesn't matter. Uh, and I got this new shirt and I, we were going on date night and I was trying to like, <laughs> I was trying to like tuck the shirt in and, and get it to look right. And I, ju- I just could not, I, I did not like what I was seeing in the mirror. So I'm kind of like trying to do the pull, you know, and how, does, how do we get this? And she's like, hey, you seem to be, you know, struggling over there. And so I said, yeah, I just, I can't get the tuck right on this shirt. And my wife said, are you sure it's the tuck? Uh, <laughs> meaning, uh, maybe it's not the tuck. Maybe it's what you're trying to tuck in. Maybe it's, you know, um, and so that little phrase, you sure it's the tuck, uh, has become commonplace in our house. I'm never allowed to say it, but she says it. Um, <laughs> Because what was I experiencing in that moment? A mirror and a wife who can't lie. Uh, <laughs> because mirrors don't lie to you. They, ju- they just show you who you are. That's what these books are. It's just a record of what you've done. They're not being cruel. It's just showing you the record of your life. Now, this is the part where so many of us in the modern age, we get immediately defensive. We, we, we stiff arm the idea of, of being judged by some standard of some archaic God who has some arbitrary set of moral guidelines that I've got to live up to this. What is, this that's so antiquated of you, Christian, to believe in some moral code of some ancient God where you get off thinking and being okay with him judging the world by his arbitrary standards. Fine. Th- throw God's standard of morality out, okay? For just a moment. Francis Schaeffer theologian of the last generation or so, has a wonderful illustration about this. And he says, can you imagine if everyone had a tape recorder? We don't have those anymore. So can you imagine if everyone had an iPhone with the voice memo app open on their, around their neck at all times? And the tape recorder or the voice memo app would only start recording when you spoke about other people and how they should or ought to be living in your eyes. So every coworker you've talked about, every child you've talked about, every in-law you've talked about, every, anybody you've ever thought, I can't, why can't they just, and they should be more kind, they should be more compassionate, they should quit being so selfish, they could, whatever it is, however you judge other people by your own standards, that voice memo recorder is only going to record your law. It's just gonna record what you believe about right and wrong. It's only gonna capture your own moral standards. Francis Schaeffer says that at the end of time on Judgment Day, what if God didn't even get out his own moral standards? He just got out your moral standards and played the recording of your own moral standards back to you. How do you think he'd measure up? And it's not some unjust God who creates arbitrary rules. It's your own law. How do you think you would measure up to your own standards? So when you stand before the judge at the end of time, how confident are you going to be in your own doings when he starts reading your book back to you? And by the way, before you start, because this is what we do, before you start judging God for having a judgment day, which is what we all do, how dare he? Judgment. Before you judge God for his judgment day, remove yourself, remove yourself from this divine courtroom for a moment, okay? Like you're out of it. You're you're an innocent bystander just watching. If you can remove yourself from the judgment room, you and I deep down love a judgment day. Like we all actually want a judgment day and we actually need a judgment day. I promise you 
you don't want a world where God isn't returning to judge evil. I promise. Remove judgment day and we should all probably just go in a ditch somewhere. Because a life in a world that isn't going to have evil put in its place one day, which is what judgment day is all about. A life in a world where God doesn't come to put evil in its place and judge evil is a world that none of us want. Terrorists and traffickers and betrayers and abusers and evildoers. We all want a world that one day has no evil in it. That's what judgment day is all about. We want a world that God has judged righteously and in so judging, he has purged and purified the good world that he originally made. He has restored the world by, as one theologian put it, getting the hell out of earth. He's purging it. He's purifying it. He's saying, my judgment will cause the river of life to flow down like waters and it will clean the world. That's his judgment day. Isaiah and Jeremiah, these Old Testament prophets and so many others, they talk about judgment day like it's good news. Do you know the good that's gonna happen on judgment day? The evil is going to be put in its place, darkness and sin and racism and sexual abuse and everything. All of it is going to be put in its place one day. That's what the judgment day is all about. And those who have suffered injustice are dying for that day to come. Do you know that this morning, do you know how many Israeli and Palestinian Christians were crying out for God to come and judge the world? Come and do something about this. Come and judge in your righteousness and in your justice. Do something. Remove the hell from this world. When the judge of all the earth comes, he's going to deal with evil. Johnny Cash sings about it when the man comes around. It's an intense song, but he's not joking. That's what it's going to be like, is God dealing with everything that has tarnished and shattered the world that he created. You want a judgment day. It's a good thing to have a judgment day. We want a God that judges and judges righteously, but... (laughs) would love it if uh, I could watch God judge the world and then kind of skip over me. Like, can you kind of judge everybody else and remove evil from everything else, but not me? But here's what's true for the Christian. It's not actually comforting news to hear that God, the just judger of all the earth, is going to skip over the Christian on judgment day. That would make him unjust. He's not unjust. So how does God remain just? How could he possibly, how could we stand in this judgment room if God's not gonna skip over us? And instead he looks in a second book. See, the book of deeds, the book of our doings, the book of our record is not the only book that's opened on judgment day. Jesus opens a second book, the book of life. Book of Life is mentioned five times in the book of Revelation. It's, it's referenced dozens of other times in scripture, Lamb's Book of Life, Book of Life, Book of Your Record. All the, 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 the heavenly book of Jesus is mentioned all throughout scripture. And yes, it's a book of names. But, but don't minimize how you've imagined the book of life and keep it so simple that it's just a list of names and it's all rote and it's just a, a, you know, an attendance sheet. That's not what the book of life is. Remember in the judgment room, what are books there for? They're there to keep record. And so your book has a record of your doings. The book of life has a record of his doings. The book of life is a record of the perfect obedience of Jesus, 
The book of life is a record of his humiliation and his crucifixion, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. It's a book that tells you of his bloodshed. It's a book that tells you of the victory that he's won. And is there a list of names in there? Yes, because every good book has a dedication page. What does the dedication page tell you? It's a list of names of who the work was for. That's what the book of life, your name is on the dedication page if you belong to Jesus. But the book's not about you. It's not about the names only. It's about what he's done. It's his record of doings. So when you stand before the judge and the record is read of what you've done, you have an option. You have a choice. When the record is read of what you've done, do you want to stand on the works of what your hands have done? You can do that. Romans chapter 2 and 3 make that clear. You can go to the judgment room and stand on what you've done. Good luck with that. But you can do it. If that's what your faith is in, that I think I've, I think I've done a pretty good job, I, I think I've, my, my good outweighs my bad, you are allowed, it would be just of God for him to let you into that room and say, I want to stand confidently on what I have done. And he will read back your book to you. Good luck with that. Or you can stand on what your hands have done or you can stand on what his hands have done. Which book do you want to place your faith in as you stand before the judge of all the earth? Another way to say that is what gives you confidence on that day? Is it your doings or his doings? That's all that faith is. What's your, where's your confidence? What's your confidence in? See, the judgment that one receives is not just based on whether or not their good outweighs their bad. And the, and the judgment that one receives is not based on God skipping over you on judgment day and saying, we'll let all those things slide, just come on. See, the judgment on judgment day, even for the Christian, it's still based on works. You'll be judged on works. Here's the question. Whose works do you want to be judged on? Yours or Jesus's? Those are your choices. The issue to be determined at the time of judgment is not one's guilt, for that is everybody. The issue to be determined at the time of judgment is whether or not one has been acquitted or justified from their guilt. And the unbeliever, this, this is what's terrifying. Those that stand on their own works, stand, their book is read to them, and they get to choose, am I standing on my own or the work of Jesus? The unbeliever stands on his own book, which means this, the unbeliever stands in the judgment room with no assistance. You will be judged by what is written in the books or you can stand in the judgment room with assistance or as the New Testament put, puts it, with an advocate. The believer will face the day of judgment with an advocate. First John, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As the record of your doings is being read and you are undressed by the mirror of your life that's being read back to you, do you want to stand and face that alone or do you want Jesus to stand in front of you and say, yes, but he is mine and my blood has paid for all of his doings? Do you want an advocate in the courtroom or do you want to stand by yourself in the courtroom? Jesus Christ the righteous is your advocate before the judge. And remember, I know this is getting heavy, but remember, the judgment day idea is not a Christian idea. 
It's every religion in the world speaks about a judgment day. When you stand before the judge at the end of all things, you are going to have to give an account of what you've done and the account of what you've done is going to be your verdict. And you can stand on what you've done or what he's done. And so Christianity is the only religion in the world. Everybody believes in a judgment day, but only Christianity gives you this fresh peace is this. You can actually have your judgment day verdict right now. Every other religion, you still got time to live. So you still got to stack up the rights and wrongs and maybe it outweighs one day. Maybe your righteous outweighs your unrighteous. You can wait and see how your verdict goes or Christian, by faith in the precious blood of Jesus, you can have your verdict right now. You can know that you are already acquitted on judgment day right now. You can bring a future judgment into the present and then live confident, not in your own doings, but in his doings. He has already been perfectly obedient. He has already shed blood and defeated death. He needs no more obedience for a perfect record and it can be yours. Because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, you can have his book of record as your own. If his blood covers you, you know now how that gavel will slam for you on judgment day. If his righteousness covers you, listen, if the righteousness of Jesus covers you, guess how you will be treated on judgment day? As a perfect law keeper. Because the righteousness of Christ has been made your own. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You can have his righteousness and stand on judgment day. And so you will be treated, you will be ushered into the kingdom as a perfect law keeper. Have you been a perfect law keeper? Heavens no, or hell no. But will you be welcomed into the kingdom as if you were, if you belong to Jesus, yes. This is why the book of Jude closes out with its benediction. We'll close our service this way too, that he can present you blameless on judgment day. How in the world can Jesus present you blameless on judgment day after all that you've done? all that you're still gonna do because he was blameless and so he can present you with great joy, blameless on judgment day. Remember the passage from Hebrews 9 speaks about the judgment of Jesus. It is appointed for man to die once and after that face judgment. The very next verse, it's about this whole chapter. Go read Hebrews 9, but the whole chapter is about this. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. Hebrews 9, 28, the very next verse so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You can face judgment, but you can face judgment eagerly awaiting that day because you already know what the verdict's gonna be. See, his work has already been done. He's already defeated sin once and for all. He's already achieved our salvation. He's already defeated death which, by the way, this is how it circles back into amillennial. This, we believe the work of Jesus binding Satan has already been done. We believe the work of Jesus, this thousand-year binding of Satan is done. It's, he's already bound the strong man. That's part of the gospel message that we proclaim. Jesus' work has already been done. He doesn't need to add to it. He's not waiting on something to, to still come and do in order to make everything right between us and the judge. He's already done it. The work has been done, or... In the words of the crucified judge himself, it is finished. It's done. So you can know what your judgment is going to be that day because the judgment has already happened and the judgment happened to Jesus. Jesus was condemned for your sin, not you. 
Paul speaks about it this way in Romans chapter eight. I know I'm jumping all over the place. I'm trying to show you that the Bible is full of judgment room scenes and themes. And it always, always, always says the same thing. You can face that day with two choices. Your works are his. Romans eight, lots of beautiful realities in Romans eight, but listen to this courtroom scene at the end of Romans eight. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Verse 34, who is to condemn then? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Here's what Romans 8 just told you. Courtroom scene, who's gonna bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, I got a list of people that might wanna bring a charge against me, namely my own conscience, but here's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, is there anyone out there who could bring a charge? How can you bring a charge against someone who's already been, their sin and their crime has already been paid for? Here's what Paul's saying. There is no double jeopardy in God's court. If your sin has already been condemned onto Jesus and he has paid for it, you can't be condemned for it again. If God were to charge you with a sin that he punished Jesus for in your place, guess that what would make real about God? He would be unjust. Because he would be charging you for a sin that's already been paid for. And Jesus has already paid for it. So he can't charge you again. It's Jesus Christ who died. So who can condemn you? He's already been condemned for it. Jesus has already suffered for your sin, past, present, and future. So if you could be charged for them again, it would be unjust in the heavenly courts. Jesus, your perfect record-keeping savior, bore the wounds that would become your ransom. The judge of all the earth has also become your merciful savior. That's what Revelation 20 is telling you. There's two books, two records, And the one with the right and the power and the knowledge to condemn you has chosen instead to condemn himself, which makes Jesus both just judge and justifier. That's what Romans 3 says. He is just and he's justifier. Only Jesus can hold those two things. And so the knowledge that Jesus is my justifier also transformed my view of him as judge. I now don't look at judgment day. I'm not, I'm not shaking in my boots wondering how the verdict is going to go. I'm eagerly awaiting the judge to return that I might hide behind him, my advocate, who's gonna present me blameless in the presence of his glory. So judgment day is coming. Whose record do you wanna stand on in that day? Let's pray. Jesus, Judgment Day sounds so foreign. We don't like it. We don't like hearing the term. We don't like imagining Jesus the judge, but would you transform our imaginations to see it as good news? Not only because of the evil that you are going to purge from this world and restore your creation into, but Jesus, restore our imagination to see the good news that we can hide behind you, our advocate on Judgment Day. That when all the record of our doing is read, you will take every last transgression of ours and tell us to our face, I have paid for that with my blood. Every last one. May that be our humble confidence to know. We stand on your record, Jesus. Your wounds have paid our ransom. We eagerly await your return. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.